Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, proudly presented by Roast House Pub, where elevated culinary creations meet a fresh, evolving craft beer selection, making it one of Frederick's unique dining destinations. Hi everyone, I'm your host Chris Sands, and today I'm joined by Steve Grass. Uh, I mean, I guess we could list a whole lot of stuff for who you are. Uh, an author, which is why we're talking right now, uh, marketer, entrepreneur, businessman. Is there anything else you want to add to that list? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. The list is endless. Provocateur? Provocateur. Professional asshole. <laughs> I think a lot of people strive to, to, to reach that. Yes, but I, I have achieved it in spades. So there you go. So the, the main reason that we are talking today is to discuss your new book that comes out on November 8th, Brand Mysticism, which I have to say is the first book that I've read in possibly a decade. Well, geez, you need to read more books, but thank you for choosing well, mine to read. I mean, I guess if you count audiobooks as reading, then I do read a lot. But okay. this is the first physical book that I've held and read cover to cover. Well, there you go. Good. You actually read it. I'm impressed. I and did. excited to discuss it with you. Oh, uh, and I and I actually I really enjoyed it. I love marketing and sales, and I often wish that is the path <clears throat> my life would have gone down because I enjoy it so much. Uh, so I, I do enjoy reading, even though you say it's not a marketing book. Um, I do enjoy reading marketing books. Great. I don't. I don't read business books at all. So the ones I like, have you, I'm assuming then you haven't read like Predictably Irrational. No. Or so like the, it's like the confluence of marketing and psychology, which psychology is also. You want to read books about um, psychology, read. I mean, I, I like to read books about uh, biographies of robber barons and uh, military heroes. So you actually, get the best, you get the best information from those. <clears throat> was the secret history of the world worth reading? Oh, absolutely. Okay. It's hard to read, though. It's, uh, um, it's confusing at times, but I think the secret history of the world is an amazing book about the secret history of the world. <laughs> I mean, in it, you learn things like the pyramids are not 5,000 years old or 3,000 years old. They're probably 25 to 30,000 years old. I mean, it's crazy stuff in there. So definitely worth reading. Yeah, I love all those things. Like, I do love books, too, that debunk long-held ideas of history that just turned out to be completely inaccurate. Absolutely. We don't, we don't know anything. And we should proceed. We should uh, walk through life assuming we know nothing. And maybe that's why I have some successes because I often say I am a moron and I don't know anything. So <laughs> I, I do subscribe oh, to that philosophy. Great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So wait, first, let's start. Um, where will people be able to get this book? Oh, everywhere. Um, get it at Amazon. Try to get it at your local bookstore if you can, but Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, you can order it directly through it, it, my my store, Art in the Age, if you want. But uh, it, it should be available everywhere. And then let's start with what made you want to write this book. Um, <clears throat> Brand mysticism was my COVID project. Um, 
I wrote a treatment for a book. I wanted to write about, um, we have such a unique approach to marketing that I, um, I wanted to try to articulate it. And um, I had worked on an article. I was interviewed by a man named Aaron Goldfarb several years ago for a, um, an article called How to Make a Booze Brand Go Viral for VinePair. And me and Aaron got along really well. And um, so I roped in him into the project and uh, together we pitched it to uh, our publisher, Running Press, which is a division of Hachette. And, um, and surprisingly, they bought it. So we, uh, we just dug in. It was about um, literally the entire length of COVID. We would, uh, we would uh, do a phone interview once a week. And then um, Aaron would write drafts and send them back and forth to me. And, and, uh, and here we are, two years later. So the, w- one of the things you, you, you said and uh, mentioned earlier is that it's not a marketing book. It's not a sale, like a sales book, but I would argue that is definitely, <clears throat> it's like part memoir, part biography, part marketing manual almost. Yeah. I mean, I think when I say it's not a marketing book, it's not a, a how to, but if you read the entirety in totality, it is a how to, because I break down my process, which is not a linear process. And it's not a, uh, a standard process that you would learn in, in, uh, in marketing school. So um, the way I create is a very organic um, sort of like cosmic mashup of esoteric stream of consciousness. And I kind of break down how I got to create that way and then how I actually do it giving a ton of examples of how to do it. So, and if you read this, I mean, cause in my, my approach, um, creativity is spirituality and it's my religion. And uh, I live to create, I don't understand why else we're here. And I feel that uh, the creative process is ongoing and constant. And it's, it's, it's not just uh, like, I, I make money because, because I love what I do, not I don't live to make money. I, the money is a, it's a tool to make more money. I mean, it's a tool to, to be more creative. So, uh, so in that sense, it's not a marketing book. It's a it's a life book. It, you know, it's it's an expression. It's it's a breakdown of my journey. And uh, in reading it, you can uh, you can adopt, or be hopefully be inspired by. How, how to adopt certain aspects of it to your to your own creative journey. So now that we got what the book is out of the way, I do have some specific questions throughout the book that I made me think a little bit more. So th- during the, the Zipperhead serial killer uh, campaign, how much thought did you put into the risk of that campaign and if it had gone completely wrong for you? Well, at that point, we didn't really have much to lose. Um, <coughs> we were young and dumb and full of fun. So uh, <laughs> um, it was kind of like, uh, I, I had a sense 
that in order to get like what I, I forget what, what year we did that. It was probably like 94, maybe 93. Um, we had, I, I got a sense that to make it big, we had to get famous and to get famous, we had to do something that was shocking or, or it got attention. So <clears throat> we, um, went to this, uh, you know, very famous punk rock store on uh, South Street in Philly called Zipperhead and just said, hey, I want to do some stuff for you. Don't pay me. I'm just going to do some posters for you. And um, when I presented them to Zipperhead, they were like, holy shit. Uh, and they never ran. We just sent them out to the press and the press went crazy. And I've never seen anything like that. That was my first my first um, time I had done something that went viral. And if you think about back in like 93, 94, making something go viral was a very different thing than it is now because we didn't have the internet. Um, but it was interesting because doing that Zipperhead campaign, we did have existing clients in Philadelphia that were very established. Like we had Comcast at that time, which was not yet uh, what they are now. They were Grass Metrophone, they were the cellular service and they were starting to get into television, but we were, uh, they were a big client for us and also Blue Cross Blue Shield. But when we did Zipperhead, they fired us, but then we got phone calls from um, Budweiser and Coca-Cola and, uh, RJ Reynolds tobacco. So we started getting calls from big national clients. It never would have happened. So we, we lost the local and gained the national uh, due to our notoriety. And the other thing that was really interesting about the Zipperhead experience was um, it's funny because we were all in our early 20s when we did this and we had a hard time getting clients to take us seriously because we were, you know, inexperienced. So the Zipperhead thing turned us into the you know the voice of Gen X. I think uh, what's his name Copeland's uh, Gen X book had just come out, and um, the Zipperhead ads were, you know, New York Times. Everybody wrote about it. It's like you know Gen X, right? And uh, suddenly we were the uh, poster children for Gen X, and it opened doors everywhere um, for us. So it was uh, I don't know. I don't know crazy wild ride, but, um, learn how to do it again and again with, um, we call them creative grenades. Um, you know, things we throw out into the culture and, and, uh, explode, you know, I, I think brands get, to, you know, you can either do it with a new brand to launch it, or you can do it with an existing brand to keep up uh, the buzz and excitement is, uh, we launch creative grenades into the culture. So another thing I had thought about, um, while reading, is you had said that when working with Puma, they yeah. offered to pay you in stock instead of yes. cash. Ah. Yeah, Did you true. ever calculate how much you actually would have, like what you lost by not accepting stock? Well, to be clear, we couldn't accept the stock because we were like, you know, just starting out and we couldn't. You wouldn't have survived without. We the, needed money. Yeah, we need, yeah. We need cash. But um, when we started working with Puma, they were 
$30 million brand. And they were selling like Puma sneakers in uh, supermarkets in Germany. It was like the war, it was dead. When we left Puma 10, 11 years later, we left when they sold the brand to Gucci for $7 billion. So yeah, I think I, uh, I think I, I didn't lose the money, but I think I could have made a whole load of money if yeah. we had been able to take stock. Straight yeah. out of school, I was interviewed and offered a job with an oil drilling company. And uh -huh. part of the compensation package was a whole bunch of stock options. Stock. And for a while, I kept that as like my homepage, ah. uh, the, like what the value of that stock. What stock it was. And I had, I had to delete it because it became pretty depressing, depressing. At, a point, ah. at some point. Yeah. <laughs> But I also would have had to live in Lafayette, Louisiana and spend a lot of time on an oil rig. So I still feel yeah. like I made the right decision. There you go. Yep. Uncapped is brought to you by one of Frederick's original Maryland craft beer destinations located off of Urbana Pike, featuring a warm, inviting atmosphere and knowledgeable staff serving up fresh, locally sourced culinary creations and unique craft beers on tap. Open seven days a week, our friends at Roast House Pub invite you to enjoy a casual lunch, happy hour specials, delicious dinners, and specialty desserts. Follow them on social media to keep up to date on their monthly beer dinners, mom's spaghetti dinner battles, and what beer is being featured for Buck Above Monday. Idiom Brewing Company proudly offers a delicious variety of beers to satisfy the most discerning tastes. Best known for their wide array of IPAs, delicious fruited sours, and robust porters and stouts, Idiom has a simple goal in mind, to bring people from all walks of life together, to enjoy themselves and each other. Whether you're a hophead looking for explosively juicy IPAs, or one of the adventurous few looking to try boozy, sour, or complex flavors, or just looking to enjoy classic styles and seasonal favorites, they'll have a little something for you. Idiom Brewing Company is located in downtown Frederick, just south of the intersection of East Street and East Patrick Street, with ample seating directly on Carroll Creek. So, and another thing you pointed out that I really thought resonated is the, the onion idea and yeah. where you were like, you were pointing out that it's really prevalent in movies or TV shows where a world is created because yeah. I think there's like this whole cottage industry of YouTubers who make a lot of money pointing out those Easter eggs and hidden gems and the backstory of of things that you may not have noticed when you watched it yourself. Well, the onion method is a, a real key or a cornerstone to what we call brand mysticism. And it's the opposite of what the current trends are in marketing. So current trends in marketing are what they call unbrand unbrands or, uh, you know, almost every, every tech brand, almost every, uh, you know, modern direct-to-consumer brand, it's literally, they minimalize the brand world. They make it as, as like devoid of, of, it's really just a brand name and a very simple logo. We take the direct opposite approach where the brands that we create have um, backstories, depth, layers, uh, hidden rooms, um, and I, and I truly believe a brand like Hendrix Gin, which is probably our most famous brand that we've created, um, 
is the success it is and keeps growing double digits after 24 years because it is beguiling, complex, mystical. Uh, there's, there's created hundreds of characters for the brand. We, we know all their names and backstories. Um, and what, what it does when you create this layers of meaning and texture is you create super fans who stay with you um, and, and really adopt the brand as part of, of who they are. And I think that's, you know, it's obvious that's this, uh, the success of like a, a Tolkien or a, um, even, you know, Star Wars or, or Marvel uh, is, is the depths and layers and, and all the thought put into creating a, a literal virtual world. And that's, um, I don't know if it works in every category, but it definitely works in the world, in the, the realm of spirits um, with the, you know, the history and the stories. And um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the onion method. Yeah. And, and I think you, I 100% agree with the idea that that builds um, like in a later uh, chapter, you talk about building cult followings. Yes. And I, I think that definitely leads into that because um, you become so much more invested in going down rabbit holes to, to learn more and to follow more. And then like, you just have that subconscious inv investing yourself into the brand. Well, there's two examples I use in the book of, of what started me on this, you know, theory. Um, the main one is I'm a total music nerd and uh, I've always been uh, interested why people are so loyal and emphatic in their cult following of bands, Led Zeppelin, Tool, uh, Bowie. And when you look at, um, I, I use Led Zeppelin a lot in the book as an example. And what, what's really interesting about a band is they're created in a total nonsensical way. So for instance, Led Zeppelin sings about, you know, Tolkien, but they use Mississippi blues as the musical style and none of it makes any sense. Yeah. But that it's that mashup of ideas that totally is illogical that creates the passion point that the fan can really dive into because it's very, it's unique. It's not riffing off something that's known. It's very, it's very unique. Um, you know, uh, and then the other point I talk about in the book, I use the reference, um, I forget who wrote the book, but it's called as if, and it's, it talks, it's an Oxford press book, very difficult to read, but, well worth it, well worth it. And they talk about the dawning of the industrial revolution, how it killed enchantment and magic in the world. Um, and it, it, this absence that people need enchantment and magic, uh, to, it, it's a form of spiritual, of, of, of being spiritual. And when it's missing, they create it for themselves. And Jules Verne was the, the, the first example of someone who's, who's done that. 
And what he did with his, his stories is he didn't just create the story, he created these incredible backstories of, uh, of you know, charts, maps. Um, and then they talk also about Tolkien, about um, Lovecraft, and they've all done these, these uh, same methods of building these elaborate backstories and worlds. And, and I always thought like, so why couldn't I do that with a brand? And, and we've done that with all of our brands now. There's like the, the attention to detail and nuance are the Easter eggs, okay? And, and then we also mash up stories into really interesting uh, ways that, that you couldn't ever get from uh, a focus group or research. So they're very interesting uh, different ways of mashing things up. And that's when I was talking about with, with the way bands create. So it's really like, you know, we take one story and mash it into another story and it creates something totally unique in the marketplace. And that's why, for instance, Hendrick's Gin, um, the stream of consciousness that went into creating that was, it, it came from a simple spark. I always create brand, brands, I always say it's like the Big Bang Theory, is they happened all at once. The entire brand is formulated as one single idea, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, a lot of, uh, clients or brands, companies, they hire one agency to do the packaging, another agency to do the uh, marketing, another agency to do the event stuff. But we always say, no, we want to do everything because it all needs to fit together in this one cohesive universe with layers and depth and meaning. Anyway, I'm talking a lot. Well, I mean, ask I, me another question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, I mean that—that—that's the goal. Uh, that was my this. stream I, of consciousness to, just there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want you to talk a lot. It actually it makes my job easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, and then I, I liked uh, that you used Led Zeppelin as you mentioned a lot because yeah. <clears throat> I was a huge. I mean, I still like Led Zeppelin, but as a teenager, I was a huge Led Zeppelin fan, and. And it was the point, like, I went down that rabbit hole with them. I read every possible book that yeah, I could find yeah. on them. And there, and it, it, it lends to that where, like, there's all the Aleister Cromwell stuff yeah, and, yeah. like, like just yeah, yeah, yeah. so many facets and stories to make but you that's even more. A big, but that's a big part of the brand mysticism book as well. Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest lesson from the book is to um, get off social media, stop googling shit and <laughs> go to the bookstore or go to the library and buy some old dusty books and delve into them because your ideas are only as good as your source material and if all you can pull from is youtube videos or uh twitter guess what your ideas are going to be like everyone else's but if you're reading old history books or old books on witchcraft or whatever you're going to have some really strange ideas. So you talk about Led Zeppelin, you know, riffing on Tolkien or Aleister Crawley, you know, that's because I'm sure Robert Plant was sitting under a tree reading Aleister Crawley's satanic Bibles and stuff. And yeah. that's, that's where the ideas come from. You know, I think everyone needs to just read more. Stop watching three minute videos and <laughs> read a, I, I'm just finishing up war and peace. I've been reading it for months and my God, it's spectacular. It's philosophical. It's, it's like uh, transformative. And uh, uh, 
I'm kind of mad I was never made to read it before now, you know? So I feel like um, that's the big lesson. You're only as good as your source material. One of my takeaways um, from the book, too, is that you have a strong disdain for, as you just mentioned, social media, or at least yep. seem to have a strong disdain for these three things. Social media, uh, business school, and uh, now I forget what the third one I thought of was. But definitely those two. <laughs> and award shows. I hate awards. Yes, or awards in general, it yeah. seems. Yeah. Uh, spirit awards, advertising yep. awards. Yep. yep. Um, well, because I feel like, you know, it's funny. I went to Syracuse University, um, Newhouse School. I didn't learn anything there. What I did was I had a really interesting experience. I, I had a combined SAT score of 780. You know, it's like uh, I, I had a lower score than most of the athletes at Syracuse, which is saying a lot. I got into the arts and crafts school. They call it, what do you call it? That wasn't called arts and crafts. It's called whatever. Like the, the shitty part of Syracuse. Newhouse was... <laughs> Newhouse was like, you know, I guess it's still the number one rated advertising school. But my dad scared me so much. He said, because uh, he never went to college. My dad, my dad didn't go to college. He said, if you don't get at least a B plus, we're pulling you out of there and sending you to, you know, community college. So I went to Syracuse and I got a 4.0 my first semester. And the dean called me and he says, who are you? What do you want to do? And I said, I want to be in Newhouse. So he let me in. But then I went to, um, I had spent a year in Thailand as, in high school as an exchange student. So the first year I got to Syracuse, I signed up to go to live in Kathmandu for a year with the University of Wisconsin. So I was at Syracuse my freshman year. And then my sophomore and junior year, I lived in Nepal, went back to Bangkok and also lived in Hong Kong. And I came back to Syracuse my senior year. I didn't know anyone because I was gone for most of the time. But man, I worked in Bangkok, Hong Kong. Uh, I, I wrote a whole thesis paper in Kathmandu. That's where I learned everything, right? So Syracuse was, it wasn't, I, I guess I wouldn't have done all those things if I hadn't gone to Syracuse. But the real learning was in experience and being out in the world. And I got all those internships by writing letters. Um, I worked in London in an internship. And then when I, was, I graduated Syracuse, um, I was hired by Young and Rubicon as a creative writer, copywriter. And I was told I was the, the first uh, copywriter they'd ever recruited right out of school, which was a big deal. But there was a creative director of Ogilvy and Mather Hong Kong named John Doig, a New Zealander. And he said, don't take the job, mate. You'll rot there. He said, if I was you, I'd buy a plane ticket to New Zealand and uh, go work in New Zealand. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I wrote a letter to Charles and Morris Saatchi at Saatchi and Saatchi in London. And I said, I would like to work for you in New Zealand. And once you know it, they wrote me back and said, you're a strange person, but you got the job. So I fly to New Zealand and with my letter, but 
they never were told I was coming to work for them and they didn't know who I was. And I flew like, what, what is it? 14 hours from LA. Right. And I get there and they're like, you, you have no job here. So <laughs> after a few days it was worked out and I did work in New Zealand, but man, I, I, all my experiences were like flying around the world, knocking on doors. And from that, what's interesting about that is when I finally opened my own agency in 89, we got business right away because I was not shy about writing letters and knocking on doors. And you just realize you just have to ask. You just have the balls to ask. Our first big client, our company was called Gyro. We changed it to Quaker City, which is a funny story. But we, we were called Gyro and our first big client was MTV, which in, well, I guess by this time it was 91. 1991 MTV was a big deal cultural force and we were uh walked in there and got a great writing assignment to do uh you know on-air promos and then we got the uh um came their agency that did all their radio and we did a ton of did all the promos for the mtv video and, and movie awards and uh i mean we just were on our way right so um have the balls to ask make your brands complex and interesting and take stock when they offer it to you. <laughs> yeah. Solid advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I buy my beer at District East in downtown Frederick, Maryland. They have an amazing selection of local and hard to find beers, and I love the option of making my own mix and match custom six pack. District East is on Northeast Street in Frederick, in the same shopping center as Showroom Restaurant and Rockwell Brewery. Most weeks, they have over 950 beers in stock. Check out this week's selection at www.districteastbeer.com. McClintock Distilling is Maryland's first and only certified organic distillery, handcrafting gins, whiskeys, vodkas, and cordials from non-GMO organic ingredients in downtown Frederick. Named the best vodka distillery in the country by USA Today. Best gin in the world at the International Spirits Competition and double gold at the World Spirits Competition for bourbon, rye, and gin. Open now for tours, tastings, and classes. Come sample the most awarded distillery in Frederick today. So one other takeaway I had is that <clears throat> you had me completely on board with you until page 89. Ha! What's um, on page 89? Uh, where you talk about faxing people. Oh. Um, or wanting, and I just absolutely hate fax machines. <laughs> <laughs> well, so is, so are you asking why would I, why was, I mean, that, I think that was about being persistent, right? It, it was about you hating email. I think that was, wasn't that, that was, it was the title of the oh. chapter or something about. Okay. Um, I mean, don't fax me now. I no longer have a fax machine. Okay, good. I'm just I, saying that. All right. I'm, I'm back on board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that I, I, I think the point is about the emails is just like, uh, I don't know. I just don't. I think that chapter was about unplugging in general. It's about unplugging. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I have a very strange work schedule. I get up at four in the morning. I work from four until, uh, I work at home, but I also take breaks where I walk. I walk, uh, seven miles a day. I take breaks and I, and I do my walks. I don't come into the office until two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm in the office from two to five where I have meetings and then I leave promptly at five and I will not look at email. 
um, I learned this many years ago. Whatever you got to talk to me about, it can wait till four in the morning. Okay. Um, I also, I will send you emails on Christmas day. The, the hardest thing an employee has to learn from me is you don't have to look at your email because just cause I'm, I'm working on Christmas morning doesn't mean I expect you to look at it. If you looked at it on Christmas morning, what are you doing looking at your email? <laughs> That's your fault. But, um, yeah, it's really about unplugging. Yeah. It's the and, chapter about a day, um, where you day talk about life. a day in the life doesn't teach you anything when the chapter's name, don't email me a day in my life. Yeah. Don't email me. Uh, it's really just like, I don't know, just unplug. I, um, <clears throat> another cool thing I, I, I liked I, in the, uh, bikini bandits videos, yeah. a lot of your, uh, fake product names, uh, were yeah. very Kevin Smith esque to me. I think it might have predated Clerks, didn't it? I think uh, it might when the one I watched. Uh, oh yeah, because Kevin Smith had all of his uh, all of his fake products. Yeah, in, his, uh, in yeah. Clerks, and that was '94. Uh, so when were, was Bikini? Okay, the Bandits were like '99. So yeah, okay. Yeah, so, so right around the same he, time frame. Yeah, but it just it, it it made me think of that. Well, we created a whole fake store called G Mart. G Mart's in the in the movies. Gmart is the evil corporation. This is again before Amazon. So it's a, uh, our riff was on Walmart, but Gmart, cause we were called gyro. So Gmart, we built a, we built an entire fake convenience store that you could buy all the products that were in the films. Um, and there was a performance space behind, behind, and this was before like McSweeney's did their time travel store or before Prada, uh, there was that fake Prada store in Marfa, Texas. So this was like this, you know, I don't know if it was the original pop-up, but it was a very early on pop-up with a whole fake convenience thing going on. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So they, in the film, the, every episode, the girls rob a G-Mart. And um, Bikini Bandits was kind of like a mixture of Scooby-Doo meets the Banana Splits, but with bikinis. <laughs> um and it's funny, you know, it's like one of our, so the story behind how we did Sailor Jerry and Bikini Bandits was RJ Reynolds Tobacco became our biggest client by far. Um, they, you know, dominated our business. It, they paid us, it was like monopoly money. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, th I think from the, the timeline I, I was able to put in my head, like that was very early on when you landed them. So yeah. And they just took over. Yeah. So like, I would, I would imagine that that money was more than you had thought about having at that point. Yes. And like a 25 year old, <laughs> uh, you know, I never wanted to buy boat or a plane. So what we did instead was we created sailor Jerry clothing company. And then we turned it into the rum company and we created uh, bikini bandits films, which were incredibly successful at the time. You know, uh, this is the early stages of, uh, you know, streaming sites. So Adam films was an early film site later got bought by MTV, but we were the biggest thing on Adam films. 
we made about 14 different Bikini Bandit films. When George Lucas came out with his Star Wars, remember the revamp that were they were terrible, but um, his uh, the trailer for the new Star Wars broke the internet, right? Until Bikini Bandits came out, and we beat Star Wars. Oh wow! Bikini Bandits was massive, and we got signed to United Talent Agency in Hollywood. And we went, went on a wild ride of like crazy Hollywood parties. Uh, and we got signed to this French film giant, Canal Plus. And, and we were set to make the, this movie, uh, Bikini Bandit Save the World, with all these French movie stars and rappers. And then the whole deal fell apart. But the exciting thing about Bikini Bandits is it was my other COVID project as I took Bikini Bandits, after watching Tiger King, I thought, my God, the world is ready for Bikini Bandits again. So track down all the footage, track down all the uh, actors, I'm using air quotes for actors, <laughs> and wrote a treatment and um, for a docu-series. And I have sold that to a major A-list Hollywood movie star who has taken it on and I will be able to announce what is happening with Bikini Bandits very soon. But it's, uh, it's alive and kicking. So the other thing, I think, I don't know if this is in the uh, book or not. If it's not, it should have been. The other thing I do is I create these worlds, but then I keep them safe even when they've gone even when they're like if, if if we retire a brand or an idea it never goes away we store it and we revive it at some point or we do something else with it it becomes a tool because you've invested time and money in a in a in an intellectual property you've created so keep it i always tell my 17 year old son who's interested in following in the footsteps of the business well it's interesting my daughter wants to be in the whiskey part of the business my son wants to be in the graphic design advertising part of the business. But I always tell my son, keep a notebook of all your ideas. Because even if you're not using that idea right now, chances are you will be able to refer to it and it'll inspire something else even if you don't end up using that exact idea. So keep all your keep all your uh, keep all your ideas and trademark them. When you have something really good, even if you're not ready to do it. Do, do the work and file it because, you know, the, the thing about now with like all these craft breweries and distilleries, if you have a good name for a product, register the name because two, two minutes later it'll be gone. So. Oh yeah. The, the, the competition for names yeah. is, is uh rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think you like specifically said that, but you, you definitely gave examples of you doing that, like uh, specifically the wine that yeah. went away. Spody. Yeah, Spody. You still, you still have the website up, even though it's not yeah. a brand that. It's active. That, that brand was a partnership problem. Sometimes that happens. If I can, I prefer to go it alone. But when we do have partnerships, we've actually gotten – good at writing the contracts so that um, 
it's very clear who does what. That, that's where partnerships tend to fall down is, is when you, uh, it's not clear whose job is to do what and who has control of what. So, so um, you've, you've worked with some huge brands. Uh, Hendrix, mm-hmm. you mentioned t- tons of your but you've also worked with Guinness, uh, yep. which is in my backyard. Uh, well, obviously the Baltimore one, not Ireland. Yeah. Um, and Miller High Life, which is mm-hmm. like a cult classic in the craft beer world. Uh, yep. Do you still work with Miller High Life or was that a one-time campaign? Uh, we don't work with Miller anymore. Okay. Uh, we still work with Guinness. I think we're going into our eighth year on Guinness with Guinness. We were instrumental in uh, building the Baltimore uh, brewery. And um, yeah, Miller was like, our job was to revamp the brand. We redid all the packaging. Um, we restored, restored it to its classic and, uh, and then moved on. Yeah. We also did Pilsner Cal. Um, we were, uh, instrumental in getting them into cans finally. So it's, uh, it's interesting because sometimes with brands that we work on, we don't see, we're not a normal, we're not an ad agency because we do so much more. We always say we're a Swiss army knife for the, for the drinks business because I can fix almost any problem you might be having, whether it's liquid issue, packaging issue, a distribution issue. Um, we know how to go in and we're like MacGyver. We can figure it out. And it's not always, sometimes something like Miller High Life, the big get that we had from them is like, giving them, uh, teaching them to have self-esteem and act like the, uh, the incredible product that you are. And to get that account, what we did was we went in there with a, uh, a jar of, uh, Hellman's mayonnaise and Heinz ketchup and said, look, these aren't expensive products, but they are the go-to products for, for everyone. They're the classic. And just because you're a supermarket brand like Miller is doesn't mean you need to be either, you know, a race to the bottom with price. The other problem they were having at the time was they were chasing after the hipsters. And we said, hipsters like you because you, you're a classic, not because you're trying to be cool like them. Um, and of course all the beer gigs we get are because of the incredible success we've had with our own brand Narragansett. So Narragansett's where we, uh, our, our sort of experimentation with all this stuff, and then we can roll it out to other brands. So the, so do you, you, do you have ownership of Narragansett? I have a, a large ownership stake. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's another beer that's popular in the craft beer circles. Yes, it is. It's, it's, uh, at one point we were the number one, um, highest rated, uh, classic American lager on beer advocate. That was years ago. I don't know where we stand now, but, um, yeah, I mean, Kansas done, done really well. Um, So do you, do you only work specifically with alcohol brands at this point? Uh, it's our area of expertise. 
it's funny because we've been delving into other categories lately, but it's because when uh, people at these bigger brands we work at, when they leave and they go to other companies, um, they tend, the first thing they do is call us. So we've been working in other, I don't, I don't want to mention what the clients are, but there's a, been a, a certain number of consumer packaged goods that we're working with because the relationship started in the alcohol business. But my theory on advertising agencies. So I feel like they're jack of all trades, master of none. They're generalists. They don't know anything about your category or your product. And all they want to do is win a stupid awards and spend all your money. They want to spend all your money as fast as you can, as fast as they can so that they can bill it and they don't give a damn about anything. So I feel like ad agencies. So our, my theory was this. So I want to be, I know more about the spirits industry than any of my clients do. And that's a fact. I actually run my own distillery. Um, we have our own salespeople, our own mixologists, our own biochemists, our own distillers. There's no question you can, uh, a client can throw at me that I can't answer. And if I can do that, I can help you in ways you can't even imagine. Whereas an ad agency, one day they're working on your spirits brand, the next day they're working on tampons, the next day they're working on tires. They don't know anything about anything. Yeah. So that, that's my theory. They kind of have like the high level ideas uh, that you would find they in a marketing They just want to do wacky, <laughs> just wacky shit that, yeah. that goes, ho, ho. I want an award. Like, you know, I don't care. But not the not necessarily the ability to speak to the craft spirit spirit it, or craft beer drinker. I I think it takes again the way we think about brands, they need to work on many levels. So I'm always surprised because we on these bigger brands we work on, there's many partner agencies that we that we work with. And I'm always surprised the lack of knowledge of, of the liquid for one. Um, but then also the, the, what actually works in the marketplace. So, and it took me years to learn this, but the easy part is coming up with a good idea. That's easy. I can do that all day long. The hard part is making it stick. The hard part is actually getting it into market and methodically making it grow. And you're methodically making it grow before your money runs out. And most, I don't know of a single ad agency in America that understands that. You know, it's funny because if you look at, the other thing we always say is judge, because ad agencies have tried to do what we've done, which is create our own products. They always fail. Why is that? Uh, there's one ad agency that we uh, always come up against, and they launched a gin brand. I'm not going to say who they are. They launched a gin brand because they wanted to be us. And oh my God, belly flop, right? <laughs> and I always say, like, you know, how do they? How how are they going to sell your product if they can't even sell their own? So anyway, I I go I diverge. I go on off in a tangent here. <laughs> 
So let's give a rundown of the book, where to find everything, keep up with you. And then uh, in the last couple minutes I have with you, I ask uh, my guests random stupid questions at the okay. end. So I, sure. I want to ask you some of those. So the book is Brand Mysticism. Uh, you said preferably uh, find find it at your local bookseller. Yeah, uh, but almost I mean, all of them can get it for you if you just ask. If they don't know, Amazon, it, but... Barnes and Noble, um, the the publisher is Running Press. So if you have problems, you can look up Running Press. Should be available pretty much everywhere, November eighth. And then you are Stephen Grassy on all social media, even though you hate it, right? Steve Grass. Oh, st- sorry. Why do I? In my mind, I kept the saying e Grassy, and then the e and then I I just recently learned it was just Grass, and then grass. I, that was the first time I screwed up today, though. So I'm proud yeah. of myself. Yeah, I'll give myself a B minus for effort. Um. So is it? Oh, I thought it was. Is it Steve Grass? Steve everywhere. I, I, uh, let me see. I'm going to look up my Instagram account right now. Hold yeah, that's what second. I was searching on. Hold on a second. Um, it's Stephen Grass. Yeah, it's a Stephen Grass on, and it, it's the same thing on Twitter also. I think so. Let me see. Stephen Grass. Oh, uh, one other question I had from the book. Uh, what is the non-Peloton uh, spin bike that you have? Oh, that's from Hendrix. <laughs> Um, so with Hendrix, it's funny. Um, oh, so that's our, what you ride as a spin bike is the the penny farthing bike that? Oh, oh, you're talking about like yeah, my it, workout. It, yeah, you oh, said no, in your I gym. Just, I don't even know. It's, yeah. just, it's just a workout bike. Yeah. It's just a workout bike. <laughs> it's funny because we did do a Hendrix Peloton spoof. It was the penny farthing bike. Yeah. No, I don't ride that for my workout. <laughs> I was going to say that. That is dedication to So the... something we didn't talk about, though. What's there's, that? Um, we launched a whiskey based on uh, the book. So in the book, we talk about um, the whiskey industry or all these, like when people buy sourced whiskey brands and put a fake story on them. Yeah. Right? So Templeton Rye is the example everyone hates, like Al Capone's, like all that bullshit, right? I think they got sued over it, all that stuff. So we wrote a chapter on that in the book. And then we also, um, there's this great graphic in the book of a dunce cap hovering over a whiskey glass. And I thought that would be a great brand. So we created a whiskey brand called Dunce. Okay. And you can look this up on Dunce Whiskey on Instagram. We just launched it. And uh, Dunce Whiskey is, we started as a troll of the whiskey industry, but it became this self-fulfilling brand mysticism prophecy because the origin of the dunce cap right there's a guy named john duns scotus who lived in the 1200s who was the smartest man alive and his cap was called the duns cap was a conical cap that uh, captured the energy of the heavens and channeled it into his head based on the conical energy pyramid power, which the ancient Egyptians used. Duns was so smart that he embarrassed the Pope, and the Pope got pissed off. So what did the Pope do? The Pope buried him alive. Okay? 
And, uh, and the Pope set out to make the Duns cap and the Dunsmen who were his disciples. He vilified them and made they flipped the script and made the dunce cap a symbol of stupidity when in fact it was a symbol of, of intelligence. Okay? So we took thought, okay, the dunce cap, interesting. What if we took these giant dunce cones and we placed them on all the whiskey barrels in our distillery? So we did this and we were wondering if it would channel the the uh the energy from the heavens into the whiskey barrels. I mean, I would assume it did. And, and it did, my God. The flavor. <laughs> the flavor, it transported, the, it trans, transmutated the qualities of the whiskey into an, a heavenly creation. <laughs> so you should go on Dunce Whiskey on Instagram. I think DunceWhiskey.com uh, is launching soon or in the process of launching. And... Um, Look it up, order the whiskey. It's um, and, and you'll just say like, "Wow, it's it's brand mysticism in motion and practice, and it's divine." It it uh the website there's a placeholder there. It says it's coming soon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a, I I would love at some time to do a future episode specifically about some of your distilleries and stuff. Cause that's typically sure. what I normally do is yeah. highlight one brewery or one distillery. Okay. Uh, yeah. but, Love that. Um, but here in the, the last couple of minutes, let me ask you some stupid questions. Okay. Who would win in a battle between a ninja and a pirate? Uh, ninja. That's wrong. It's a pirate, but <laughs> All right. does pineapple belong on pizza? No. Correct. Is Nickelback actually a good band? No. Correct. Correct. <laughs> if you were a wrestler, what would your walkout music be? <laughs> um, Stroke by Billy Squire. <laughs> Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Absolutely. What would the title of your biography be? Brand Mysticism. I, I, I was hoping that would that was a softball. <laughs> Who would play you in a movie about your life? John Malkovich. Oh, that's good. That would work. Yeah, I get mistaken for him all the time. Somebody stopped me on the street just the other day and was calling me Mr. Malkovich. And it's happened <laughs> to me. Happened to me once at Harrods in London. Do you, do you correct them or just go with it no. and let them think I that flow, they met? I go with the flow. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, flow, you have yeah. to. Take a selfie, make them think that they met. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I think he's like 15, 20 years older than me, but sure. Yeah, I'm him. <laughs> what no. would you rather hear first, good news or bad news? Bad news. If you were a member of the Spice Girls, what would your name be? Smelly. <laughs> If you drop food on the floor, what is the maximum amount of acceptable time to still eat it? <laughs> None. I have a dog. He comes and scoops it up instantly. That would that my dog also is yeah. there in no. seconds because she's just yeah. waiting for any chance yeah. to. Yeah. In fact, she'll if my seven year old moves a little bit out of the way, she'll dive at her plate. She's horribly yeah. trained. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right, one more. What is the worst concert you've ever attended? Oh, you know what? Recently, 
My wife dragged me to see the patch mode. And they didn't play any of their hits. I don't and understand these, when bands do that. I know. And they had these cat it was at Madison Square Garden and they had these cameras on them. And they looked like they were 80-year-old drag queens. And I'm like, what the hell? A good story though, because my wife takes me to see all these. I don't like to see old bands. I like to remember them as they were. Yeah. But she took me to see New Order and Pet Shop Boys. And I was, I love New Order. I was expecting, I'm like, oh, really? Pet Shop Boys? Pet Shop Boys went on first. And they were fucking amazing. They seemed to master the age thing because they put on an amazing show. Then New Order came out. And the music, they sounded great, but they were so sad to watch. Like, like, you know, the one keyboard player, the woman, she just looked like somebody's grandmom. And then, <laughs> and Bernard Summers like dancing around the stage. And I'm like, dude, just no. So uh, anyway, you know. A couple years ago, I went to see um, the Violent Femmes. Yeah. And they were themselves amazing. It was more like the crowd. The audience, was, yeah, they're walkers. Like it was, yeah. it was a bunch of forty and fifty year olds that couldn't oh. move very well because their backs hurt. <laughs> so I know. I everyone just, was just I standing there, still like nodding. <laughs> I don't. I don't like. Please stop dragging me to, uh, to these shows because I just I can't take it. It's so sad to me. Anyway, all right. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Yeah, I great. Thoroughly enjoyed the book, and as I said, it's the first actual hardcover book I've successfully read cover to cover in at least a decade that's amazing thank you thank you so much uh and thank you everyone for listening cheers the uncapped podcast is produced by graham cullen and me chris sands be sure to like us on facebook and if you've enjoyed these podcasts please leave us a review on google play or the itunes store a special thanks to double motorcycle for providing our theme music thanks for listening oh my god that's good